Father, thank you so much for the time that we get to spend here in Mark 10. God, thank you that you've gathered us again. Thank you that, Lord, we get to lean in and hear from you. Help us, Lord, to to engage this as if our lives depended on it, that it would be that important to us. We're hearing from you. This is what you have chosen to give us, and Lord, through it, we learn about your character and about your ways and about your kingdom. Lord, it's so important to help us to treat it as such by the way we listen. Holy Spirit, we ask that you work in us, that, Lord, you would put your finger on areas of our lives that need to be adjusted, areas that we might need some direction in, areas that we might need to walk in repentance, owning up to things that we've been holding on to, letting go of things that we've been holding on to. God, do that work, we pray, in our hearts for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're trying to reach a particular destination and there's only one way to reach that destination, but there's an obstacle in the way, what needs to happen? The obstacle needs to be removed. And if you begin in a direction but find out you're off course, what needs to happen? Someone needs to redirect you. Our passage today presents two stories. Both have to do with reaching a particular destination. The first story highlights an obstacle that needs to be removed, while the second reveals the need for redirection. Let's look at Mark chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first story involves an obstacle that needs to be removed. And that obstacle is money, it's wealth, riches. It seemed like the man was was off to a great start with Jesus. He runs up to Jesus, he falls on his knees before him, he calls him good teacher and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, he seems eager, he seems sincere, respectful, willing to listen, he's on his knees. But Jesus answers with a question that caused a stir back then and causes a stir still today. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, I think he's essentially saying, before you address me with that title, you better think about what, what the implications are, especially what they are for you. You see, the man's question it shows that he's, he's thinking in terms of works righteousness. He wanted to do something. What must I do, Jesus? Give me a list. Give me a list. I'll do it. Jesus goes on to give the man a summary of the commands that he was called to keep according to the law of Moses. And interestingly, he leaves a few out of his list. Putting God first, no idols, not taking God's name in vain, keeping the Sabbath, not coveting. He leaves those out of the list. The man answers in the positive, I've kept all the commands since I was a boy. Yeah, as we read the Gospel of Mark, don't forget to slow down and make observations. It's like looking out the window while you're on a flight or while you're on a road trip. Like, look out the window, enjoy the view. Soak it in. Make observations. Because here, we're given a clear view of Jesus' character and personality as he responds to this, this young, wealthy man. It says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And as I was studying this uh, this week, I mean, this is one of the things that stood out to me the most. Because here we see Jesus' character, his personality coming out. He doesn't dismiss the man. He doesn't laugh at the man. He doesn't roll his eyes at the man. He looked at him. 
He gave him his attention. He treated him with dignity and value. He loved the man. With love as the motive, Jesus tells this man what he needed to hear, whether he wanted to hear it or not. One thing you lack, Jesus says. What is it? One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Oh, that's big. One, one thing, one thing, go sell everything. Okay. Jesus is saying to this man, what you have is in the way. It's in the way of what you're saying you want. It's an obstacle. Now, it's difficult to label wealth and money an obstacle. It was difficult back then. It's difficult for us today. Instead, when we receive a lot of money, if you've ever received a lot of money, or when you make this great purchase, you get the car of your dreams or the house of your dreams or whatever, and you take a picture of it, it's just hashtag blessed, right? Mm. You look up hashtag blessed, and you see what you see on Instagram. It's just, it, people are rejoicing in God's provision. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. So how could this be an obstacle? You've given this to me, God. But Jesus is demanding that this man's idol be thrown out, be removed. Now, if we were standing there at this moment, and if we didn't have verse 22 in front of us, we would be waiting for the man's reply. The ball is in his court now. It took Jesus one sentence to expose the man's heart, didn't it? Jesus' words have done what a surgeon's knife does. It provides an exact cut where it was needed to expose the problem. Jesus is lovingly putting his finger on the one thing this man loves the most. Money. Money provides comfort, power, the feeling of control. Give that up. The man's face does all the talking for him. It says his face fell. Every parent knows that look. When you're talking to your son or your daughter and you say no to something or you challenge them in a particular way that they don't like and they look like this. (laughs) Their face does the talking. This man, his face, his face fell as did that cup. (laughs) In this highly emotional scene, it says, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad, and here's the reason the man went away sad, because he had great wealth. He went away sad with all of his stuff, with everything he owned, he was still sad. It didn't bring joy, it didn't bring happiness. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He wasn't willing to let it go. Now, you know the saying, money is no obstacle if you've got the money. But money was an obstacle on this day. And it's still an obstacle today. Now, Jesus isn't calling all of us to sell everything we have, give it to the poor, and follow him. He is calling us to a sacrificial life. 
And he might be putting his finger on an area that you aren't willing to let go of. And I'm sure he is. What area of your life are you unwilling to lay down? I I can remember back in in college when Valerie and I were dating, uh, it got to the point where our relationship was, it it just had become an idol in my life. Now at the time, I, I wouldn't tell you that's what it was. Wasn't mature enough to think of it that way. It wasn't a, it wasn't, in my heart, it wasn't in a healthy place. Jealousy and anger and all kinds of things were just rising up in my heart in relation, in in that relationship. And eventually, God really stepped in and called me to lay her down through her breaking up with me. (laughs) But I laid her down. Actually, the truth is, I had to let, let her go. And it took a long time. She did break up with me. She did break my heart. But, and there was this wrestling match over, God, I thought she was the one. What's going on here? And it was months. I'm talking over six, eight months before I finally just gave it up and said, God, I'm trusting you with the future. And then a few months later, she came back, tears in her eyes, expressing her great love for me. (laughs) Happy ending, guys. There's a happy ending here. This story doesn't end on a happy note, but mine did. What happens when what you have is an obstacle to what God has for you? Ask that question. What happens when what you have is an obstacle to what God actually wants to give you? You've got to remove it. It's got to be adjusted. In other accounts of this story, we're told that this man was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler of some kind. And so we know him as the rich young ruler. There are three major hurdles then. Riches, youth, and power. He had it all. But Jesus says, one thing you lack. You think you have it all? You think you've been obeying in every One thing you lack. And he couldn't part with what he had because what he had was what he really wanted. He came asking about eternal life. And it sounded like he really wanted it, but he didn't want it bad enough. He wanted it on his own terms. And so the man chooses the lesser treasure. He chooses his possessions over the kingdom of God. It ends on a sad note. Now, we we didn't um, have a a talk on it, but in Mark chapter 4, there's this parable of the seed that's thrown and some seed that falls to the ground falls among thorns. And this symbolizes the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things that come in and just choke out the word, making it unfruitful. It can happen. We receive the word of God and then we get caught up in the stuff of life, the deceitfulness of wealth. Guess what? Wealth is still deceiving. It's still able to choke out our greatest treasure. We need to be on guard against it. Now, this man requested eternal life. What was he asking for? He had a a vision, as many in that day did, of the age to come. Life in the age to come. Now, as we continue in the story, Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, the age to come, eternal life, salvation. These are uh, synonymous. He's essentially saying the same thing. What does it mean to live under the rule of God? Here and now, 
under his rule and looking forward to the age to come when he's going to make all things right, when he's going to renew everything. What's it going to look like then? I want that is what the man was saying, but he didn't want it bad enough. He wasn't willing to lay down his wealth. And so Jesus says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So he's using hyperbole here. He's being, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's somewhat of a comical uh, statement here. He's choosing the biggest animal, and he's thinking about the smallest point of entry, uh, the, a needle, the head of a needle, the eye of a needle. The disciples understood the hyperbole. The disciples understood the saying. They totally understood it because then they say, well, then who then can be saved? And that's the point. Now, some have tried to say that there was some sort of gate called the, uh, you know, the eye of the needle that camels would duck under. There's no proof for that. It's a saying that really is clear. Salvation, entering the kingdom, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and that's not happening. So who can be saved? The disciples are asking the right question. They realize that we all have our own riches that we are striving to hold on to. They realize the impossibility of salvation. But God does the impossible. He's done the impossible for any of us who have faith in him. He's continuing to do the impossible. The rich man had everything, and now Peter, if you notice, he says, well, we've left everything, Jesus, to follow you. I love Peter. Look what he says. Verse 29, Jesus says in response to what Peter was just saying, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them, persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. We'll pause there. Listen, this passage has been so abused by the so-called prosperity gospel preachers who claim that we will receive more homes and more cars and more material possessions in this life if we just do certain things, if we give in a certain way. It's, it's a false teaching. That isn't at all what Jesus is talking about here. And the context helps us understand the passage. We just read about the obstacle that wealth is, didn't we? with the rich young ruler. So when we enter the kingdom of God, here's what happens. When we bow our lives to the rule of Jesus, who's the king, he is the king, and he's announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. Let me just explain the, the kingdom of God a little bit. It might help you understand it in Jesus' day. Jesus was on the scene, and he's expressing his power over darkness of every kind, right? Demonic, sickness, death itself. He even shows his power over nature. Jesus is the divine king that the prophets had been speaking of. He's on the scene. So the kingdom had come, but the kingdom will come still. What's that about? I like to think of it this way. You wake up in the morning and you see the splashes of color coming over the horizon. You see the pinks and the yellows and the oranges lighting up the sky. And you know that the colors are a guarantee of what's to come. The sun is coming. 
The sun will rise in all of its beauty and glory, but not yet. But it's right there over the horizon. And with the age to come or the kingdom of God, as Jesus went around preaching and healing and and raising the dead to life, splashes of color were shining. And when he died and he rose again, it got even more brilliant. The colors were splashing on the sky. But one day he will return and sin will be completely eradicated, done away with, and he'll wipe away every tear from our eye. But what he's done on the cross and through his resurrection is a guarantee of what's to come. It's a guarantee the sun will rise. We'll see it in all of its glory. The sun will return. We'll see him in all of his beauty and splendor. So the kingdom of God is present and it's still coming. There's, I, I pray that helps you. There was this anticipation and Jesus is, is, a, is addressing misconceptions about what the kingdom of God is even going to look like. And he's doing it throughout his ministry. So when we bow our lives to Jesus as king, we enter the kingdom of God. And we become a part of a new community of God's people, his church. Which means that in the present age, right now, here and now, we receive a hundred times as much. What? Brothers, sisters, mothers, homes. Homes are open wherever we go in the the church. I've traveled all around the world and I've seen brothers and sisters and mothers in the family of God. In the new community of God's people, opening their homes to me. I think that's what he's getting at. We've received a hundred times more as we've entered this new community. And with it, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Are your possessions, are they getting in the way of what you say you want in Jesus? We have to ask that question. Are your possessions possessing you? Are they all consuming? We live in a very consumeristic culture. We're swimming in it. So it's hard. It's hard to to call it out. Maybe you can relate with the rich young ruler. I want eternal life. Give me a list. Show me what I should do. I'll do whatever I can to keep your commands and just hope for the best. A lot of people are living this way. As I, I talk to people throughout our community, I just hope the scales weigh in my favor. I talked to someone recently, just a couple months, a months ago, and he basically worded his, his hope that way. I just try to do my best, try to live a good life and hope it all works out in the end. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't work out that way. That's not how it works. That's not, how, that's not what it means to be a Christian. We have a certainty in Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, in his obedience to the Father, that he lived for us. He took our sin. He took our shame. I don't have to like hope this all works out in the end. Hope that the scales weigh out in my favor. If you're, if you're banking on that, they will not weigh in your favor. Unless you're looking to the perfection of Jesus who won your freedom for you. I've attended church. I've read the Bible since I was a kid. Remember the rich young ruler? I've been doing this since I was a kid. What else? The kingdom of God, it can't be bought. It can't be earned that way. It's a gift that must be received. What are you afraid to let go of? What is Jesus putting his finger on? What's in the way? What have you been giving yourself to that Jesus is saying, lay it down? What's distracting you? Please do not walk away from this, from this 
story sad like the rich young ruler did. The second story we see is the need for redirection. Jesus is leading the way. Verses 32 on. He's leading the way. It's a picture of of a resolute leader who knows exactly where he's going and what he's doing. And the disciples, well, they're, they're astonished, utterly amazed. They're just dumbfounded. While the crowds that followed are afraid. They're just catching bits and pieces of what Jesus has been saying about himself. They're wondering what lay ahead. They know that someone who talks the way Jesus is talking, usually they end up dead. Killed. And Jesus here, he pours out his heart. And for the third time in Mark, he brings another prediction of his death, this time with a bit more detail. But there is no question in Jesus' mind what will happen. Listen to what he says in verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was located on a hill, higher elevation. They're going up. Whenever you go to Jerusalem, you go up. Uh, So you're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. You think there's any question in Jesus' mind what's going to happen? They will do this. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So he's referring to himself, yes, in the third person. A lot of people don't talk that way, I know. But Jesus is talking that way. He's teaching his disciples what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. You ever pour out your heart to someone? Just share something extremely personal, something that weighed heavy on your heart, only to have them answer back with something off topic? And they're only waiting for you to stop talking so they could start talking. They're thinking about what they want to say the entire time. How does that make you feel? Don't make you feel good, does it? That's what's happening here. Jesus just poured out his heart about what's going to happen in painful detail when he reaches Jerusalem. And then we see in verse 35 the response of James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these bros of thunder, remember their nickname? They come to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's hilarious. Whatever we ask, like Jesus is their genie in a bottle. Here's our list. You see, the rich man came to Jesus saying, give me a list. What should I do? These guys, they're saying, hey, Jesus, here's our list. Here's what we want you to do for us. They want a prominent position in his about-to-be-realized kingdom. A lot of misconceptions, again, about what the kingdom of God would look like. They expected an earthly kingdom, one where Jesus would take an earthly throne and push out Roman rule because they were under oppressive rule. It made sense to them. What they didn't understand in that moment was that Jesus came to bring freedom that looked beyond Roman rule. It was a freedom from sin and slavery to sin. This is the portrait the Gospel of Mark gives us of Jesus' closest disciples. Pretty raw. What's the deal? You might even be a little embarrassed by their question. Guys, come on, didn't you just hear Jesus, what he said was going to happen in Jerusalem? 
You're looking for position? You're looking for fame? You wanna, one of you wants to sit on his right when he comes into his glory? Didn't you just hear that he was going to die? If they heard anything, it was selective. Or they saw it as some kind of parable of suffering to come, but there would be glory. They wanted position. They wanted fame. They wanted control. Selfish ambition is hard to see. Selfish ambition can easily blend in with worship and even become a mask for it. But Jesus patiently replies, again, he's loving these guys. Verse 38, he says, you don't even know what you're asking. They needed redirection. He says, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Will will you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized? Yes, yes, Jesus, we want that cup. They have no clue. The wickedness of the world, the the just judgment of God, the full force of the Father's wrath on sin, that's the cup that Jesus would drink. Baptism, a picture of death where you go under the water, you die, you come out a new person, raised to life. Jesus was going to die. And he's saying this to them, what you want James and John, listen, what you want is misdirected. It's in the way of what I want for you. They say, we can do it so confident. They would drink a cup and be baptized with a baptism. James, the brother of John here, who's making this request of sitting at his right or left, Acts chapter 12, Herod had him beheaded. And John, oh, he would go on to suffer greatly. They would endure the cup and a baptism of persecution and suffering for Jesus' namesake. Imagine if God gave us everything we asked for. That would be a scary world. Jesus' refusal to give them what they asked, it reveals grace. Finally, Jesus leads his disciples into a lesson on true greatness. And this is the way of the kingdom. You know, when the 10 heard that James and John were asking for position and when Jesus comes into his glory, they they weren't happy. They, They were ticked. They were indignant. There was jealousy and ambition just flying around everywhere. It was also a very callous move on James and John's part to approach Jesus in private. Hey, we want you to do this for us. We don't want the other guys to hear either. It's offensive. But Jesus sees this opportunity as they're all mad at each other as an opportunity to teach them the way of the kingdom. And so he called them in verse 42. He actually, the word is like he's summoning them to himself. It's time to teach these angry disciples a lesson. And he says in verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He redefines greatness and he models it for his disciples and for us to follow. He's patiently explaining to his disciples the totally different pattern, the totally different way of life for those who are part of God's kingdom, who live under the rule of Christ. The way of the world and the way of the kingdom are are in conflict. They're clashing. 
dominance, a heavy-handed, authoritative rule? Nope, not so with you guys. I know what you just asked for, to sit on my left and right in glory. But true greatness, he says, is humble service. And Jesus, by the way, church, is the greatest example of humble service. He says, instead, I want you to be a servant. The word is uh, diakonos. It's deacon. It means waiting on tables. We have deacons here in the church. Some are our house group leaders. Others are not. They're serving. They're serving in different ways. It's, they're waiting on tables, in a sense. Jesus is saying, that's what I want all of you to do. I want you to serve. And then he says, to become a slave of all. Slave of all? Are you kidding me? What about my rights? What about my freedom? I thought you came for freedom's sake, not to enslave me. But verse 45, which is a sweet verse, it provides an answer to all of our objections. This is Jesus' mission statement. He explains in one sentence the reason why he came, the reason why he took on the stuff that we're made of, the reason he became flesh, and the way he would secure our freedom. Look what he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's why I came, is what he's saying. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Now, ransom is the price of release from slavery. It's buying back a people from slavery or prison or death, paying the price, securing someone's freedom. I just thought that you wanted me to be a slave of all. And now you're saying you're, you're going to be the ransom? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And this passage, verse 45, is an echo of the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, speaks of a suffering servant, a divine servant who would come and accomplish something for his people. And listen to how he describes this suffering servant who would come. Isaiah 53 Let's start in verse four. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You, see, you hear what's going on here? This suffering servant would be a substitute, would stand in the place of others. That the Lord, that Yahweh would lay on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his, her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, 
and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. Oh, let's keep going. And was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You get the point. Isaiah's suffering servant is Jesus. Matthew 45 is an echo of what Isaiah is saying. Jesus came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom. He was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus stood in our place to gain our freedom. And so he calls us now to live as a slave of all in his freedom. I know it sounds like an oxymoron. Moron. I know it sounds like a contradiction almost. He's called us to live in our freedom as a servant to all. That's true greatness. And he models it for us, even in the laying down of his life. Jesus is the full expression of God's love. And he's the full satisfaction of God's justice. Church, I have to ask, in light of what we learned about the rich young ruler, could what we have be in the way of what Jesus has for us? We have to ask that question. What is he putting his finger on in love? How are his words gently addressing areas that you're holding on to that you shouldn't be? Could what we want be in the way of what Jesus wants for us? Where have we come with our selfish ambition and made our request? This is what I want and when I want it. Where have we done that? And how is it in the way of what Jesus wants for us? Are we willing to lay that down? A good prayer would be this. Remove every obstacle, Jesus. Remove every obstacle that's in the way of what it means to follow you. Are you willing to pray that? It's a bold prayer. Because when you start to pray that way, he begins to lovingly address areas of your life. Would you pray, redirect every desire that puts my agenda before yours? Would you dare pray that prayer? Would you pray, redefine what greatness is to me? I've been too informed. I've been, I've been taught by the world, and I know your kingdom is in conflict with that. So help me to see what true greatness is. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would remove every obstacle that's in the way. Father, we pray that you would redirect every desire that pulls or that puts my agenda before yours. And Father, we pray that you would redefine what greatness is to us. Do that, Lord, for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.